Welcome to Commercial Contracts 2022, a series of podcasts by Stevens and Bolton designed to help you and your team members improve your terms and conditions, master service agreements, outsourcing arrangements or standard terms and conditions. My name is Beverly Flynn and I head up the Stevens and Bolton commercial team. I'm here today with my colleague Kerry Garcia, who heads our employment and immigration team. We're going to talk today for about 10 to 15 minutes about the key considerations for clients when they're negotiating outsourcing or TSA agreements with a service provider from an employment perspective. So Kerry, welcome. Thanks Beverly, good to join you. So we're going to start today by talking about what businesses should consider when they're outsourcing for the first time. And that's what we call a first generation outsourcing, isn't it? That's right. And thanks, Beverly. Um, as you probably know, listening to this, if services are being outsourced, so that's to a third party service provider. So, for example, if you're outsourcing a cleaning or facilities management service contract, then those employees who are assigned to providing those services, they're usually going to transfer to the new service provider under 2P. And as many of you will know, this gives rise to quite a number of employment considerations and unfortunately possible liabilities. So that's both for you as the outgoing employer, the client, and also for the service provider as the new employer. And the issue when you're considering drafting these agreements is how are you going to apportion those risks and liabilities when you're looking at the outsourcing agreement? So it's usual for the outsourcing agreement to have numerous 2P provisions. And we commonly see these split up into sections which apply on entry. So you look at the 2P provisions at the start of the service uh, provision, and then you look at clauses that apply during the course of the contract and what governs that. And then, of course, what happens when the contract ends? And on both entry and exit of this agreement and the services, we're really looking at the possibility that employees may be transferring under 2P and therefore what are liabilities arise. That's right. I mean, uh, for us commercial lawyers, we tend to call it 2P on award or um, and 2P on exit uh, because we're kind of focused on what's going to happen at the beginning and the end. And I know that uh, in the employment world, there's a little bit more to it than that. Um, we know that 2P broadly means that where a service provision change occurs, the employee's employment together with their rights and liabilities will transfer over on entry or award to from the client or the current service provider to the new service provider and then vice versa on exit from the service provider to a new service provider so that's sometimes known as second generation 2p when we talk about it in the context of a commercial contract what are the kind of key employment issues and risks that you think the in-house counsel and us commercial lawyers ought to be aware of kerry Thanks. Yes, it's a good question. I mean, there's obviously quite a few things to think about because 2P is um, one of the more complicated areas of um, employment law. Um, so first thing you obviously want to think about is on award, is 2P going to apply? So when the new service provider takes on those services and takes on this new contract, will 2P operate to transfer people? And similarly, when the contract comes to an end, is 2P going to apply? And then you'll need to think about, assuming that it does, to what extent will you as the client, assuming this is a first generation outsourcing arrangement, are you willing to provide warranties um, to that new service provider? So warranties about the employees, or are you willing to provide other information? And then most importantly, what you're really focusing on is how is the risk in relation to the various employment issues going to be allocated? 
So you've got a risk of claims that you inherit when you take when the um, service provider takes on the employees and those transfer over to the new service provider. And there's also a risk where employees potentially resign where there's going to be changes in their working conditions, which is to their detriment. Oh, yes, that's the dreaded Regulation 4.9 claim. And I've often remember having discussions with you about mobility clauses and things like that in that context. That's right. So we'll have a look in a minute, but it's particularly problematic when there's a change of location um, or benefits can't be replicated. So that's always one to watch out for. And then you look at as well when you're considering the drafting, what happens if um, there's going to be any redundancies? So the new service provider inherits employees and actually they don't want all those people. So they need to make them redundant. Who's going to pick up the costs? That's quite often a, a quite a thorny commercial negotiation. And finally, there's this particular obligation to inform and consult before a 2P transfer. So who's going to take that risk if that obligation um, isn't complied with? Oh, is that the 25% of the salary roll point um, that we'll yeah. come up to? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So failure to inform and consult, it does have a significant consequence because I think I've just let the cat out of the bag. Sorry. <laughs> No, no, you're absolutely right. Um, and we always say, uh, as employment lawyers, that the penalty, if you don't inform and consult, is potentially, as you rightly say, a quarter of the, the wage bill. And just a reminder that the outgoing employer, so in this case, the client, if it's first generation outsourcing, they've got a duty to inform representatives of those employees who are transferring about the duty transfer. And if the new service provider is going to be making any changes, uh, which we call measures, then there's also this obligation to consult with the representatives. And unfortunately, if that doesn't happen, then as Beverly said, there's um, basically up to 13 weeks actual pay per employee. So it's quite a hefty sum, it adds up fast. And it's worth bearing in mind that it's both the outgoing and the incoming employers who by law are jointly and severally liable. So one of the things you're looking at is actually under the contract, you want to change that to make just one party liable. Yes, that's right. So often at the beginning, Kerry, we'll be working with you to decide how to allocate the risk and reward and, and what we're going to do about TUPI. But actually, back to the nitty gritty and the drafting, um, would you say there's a lot of drafting involved? There is, I'm afraid. Um, probably uh, more than people realise, I think it's fair to say. And it, it can be quite complicated drafting where the devil's in the details. So it is an area where generally you do need um, an employment specialist involved. So just thinking about some of the main points on entry or on award, as you mentioned, Beverly. So if it's a first generation outsourcing, then there's going to be considerations as to is 2P going to apply? Most cases, yes, 2P is going to apply. Um, if the services which are currently being provided are then going to be fundamentally the same as the services provided by the new service provider, then it's likely 2P will apply. And you're then looking at, do you have this organised grouping of employees who are dedicated to those services. So that's the first thing that you look at. Um, and if so, then we need to move on to have a look at how we're going to pick up those risks. Yes, because I suppose as the commercial lawyer, we're kind of looking at the price and then this kind of links into the price as well. So how would you generally allocate risk on entry if TUPI does apply? So usually we'll see that where there is a first generation outsourcing, um, in relation to those entries on, uh, sorry, those indemnities on award, the client will quite often offer some form of indemnity. So most commonly, the client would give an indemnity for any liabilities that arose before the transfer happened. 
um, and very often also for failure to inform and consult. And that's because it's obviously as a client, um, you're the current employer, so you've got some control over it. Yeah, so it's kind of it's a kind of known risk, really, isn't exactly. it? Because they're your employees. But I can imagine on a second generation outsourcing becomes a bit trickier. Yeah. So in that case, it's obviously uh, quite a bit more tricky because at that stage they're not your employees. So it's a case of there's a third party service provider that that contract's terminating, and there's a new service provider who's going to be coming in to provide the services. So the employees aren't your own. And in that case, you clearly as the client are one step removed and you'd need to be very, very careful about giving either warranties about the in uh, the people's employment. Um, but also in particular, you need to be careful about offering any indemnities on award. And we will sometimes see that you may have back to back indemnities. Mm-hmm. So yeah. you could, for yeah, as you'll probably know, you could look at what are the indemnities you received from the service provider that's leaving. Um, and can you then sort of back to back those in the new agreement? But it's tricky. I think you probably agree, Beverly, and we try to resist that if if we're advising the client. Yeah, I know it's quite hard, really, isn't it? There's no there's no um, no safe way of approaching it. It's always dependent on the particular facts and scenario, I would imagine. Exactly. Um, yeah. And then on exit, what sort of provisions are we really looking for? Um, I suppose they need to be. Um, sometimes you can't really look that far ahead and know whether or not TUPE is going to apply on exit because I imagine there may be a reduction of services during the life of the contract or uh, the services may get split up or subcontracted out more. Exactly. So you'll often split the drafting so that you'll have drafting that says if TUPE does apply, then these are the indemnities which apply. And then you may have a separate set of drafting in the same agreement, which says if TUPE doesn't apply, then very often the employees have to be redeployed or made redundant. And then, of course, you have to look at who bears those redundancy costs. But assuming that 2P is going to apply, then you're going to want a series of indemnities um, from the service provider, which apply on exit. And ideally, you're going to want those indemnities to cover any liabilities that occur up until the exit of the the service agreement. And you really want to try and push for those to be in favour of both the client, you, if you bring the services back in-house, But also in an ideal world, you want them to be for the benefit of the new service provider so that at that point they could then enforce those indemnities directly. Yes. And then as the commercial lawyer in that context, we're often in control of the boilerplate. And that brings to mind the third party rights act clause and making sure that that's considered and you haven't somehow either allowed the successor contractor to have the benefit of the indemnities without some control on your part or whether actually you've you've by mistake, managed to close them out from actually uh, enjoying the benefit of the indemnity, would you say? Yeah, you really need to watch that, absolutely, too. And as a say, acting for the client, you would always be pushing for those indemnities to be in favour of successor contra- uh, contractor, but it, it can become quite heated in negotiations on that point. Yes, I mean, again, when I'm looking at it from the commercial perspective, we also need to watch the price and the cost clause to find that actually everything that we've just negotiated through the cheapy on exit provisions then doesn't get recharged back to the client under the pricing or the costs or the compliance with law provisions. So, yes, it's a bit of a jigsaw, really. Um, You mentioned redundancies on exit where cheapy doesn't apply. We sometimes see redundancies on entry um, or during the agreement where there's a reduction. 
um, or at exit if TUPI doesn't apply. How do you go about dealing with the drafting for this scenario as the client? Because, um, you know, it strikes me as, as quite tricksy, really. That's right. And certainly some of the ones I've advised on recently, this has been um, the, the key point in the negotiations. Mm -hmm. And obviously, as the client, your first point is always going to be to try to resist it. And you try to argue that, well, actually, it's service providers problem. Um, they're responsible for those costs. But then, of course, they're likely to simply increase the cost of the, the entire commercial contract. So you end up paying. But the really key thing on the drafting is to make sure that you limit what it is that you're paying for redundancy costs. So you want to make sure it's very defined costs. So, for example, you just cover statutory redundancy pay, yeah. notice pay. And very importantly, that you don't sort of give an indemnity in respect of dismissal claims if the service provider doesn't follow a fair process. And uh, so yeah. that you're not, yeah, you really don't want that. And that you're not covering sense. Yeah. Yeah, enhanced redundancy pay. So if they decide to offer people extra payments, you shouldn't be responsible. And quite commonly, you get into discussions around the drafting where there's um, certain limitations, either about the total amount that you're covering or how quickly the redundancies must take place, or how many people are made redundant, or whether a particular process has to be followed. So it's really about limiting what the liability is as a client. Yes, and then again, putting my commercial lawyer hat on, it's making sure that the limits on liability in the agreement don't cut across what you've just negotiated in the 2P provisions, because you could find you've, you've drafted and negotiated these lovely uh, indemnities but actually they're subject to some ridiculously low cap or exclusion of liability elsewhere so again it's dovetailing them. Um, we haven't yet talked about standstill provisions, um, is that something that you want to maybe just tips on drafting and actually what they are because it, it may be some of our listeners don't even know what a standstill provision, provision is and I have to say until you started calling them that I didn't know either. <laughs> Yeah, maybe it's just uh, yeah, something that we use in employment, but it's it's really the provisions looking at um, what happens where notice has been given. So it's in those final months of the contract or if you've got a fixed term contract, um, the months leading up to the end of the contract, because from a 2P and employment perspective, the last thing that you want is um, the service provider suddenly changing people's terms and conditions. So maybe paying them or giving them extra benefits or even worse, putting extra people on the contract so that there's far more people to 2P transfer at the end. So what you have are these provisions, which effectively mean things shouldn't change during that period. So you put restrictions on the ability to change terms and conditions or to move people into working in those services, hence why they're called standstill provisions. Yeah. So definitely you want quite a good set of those from the employment perspective. So that's worth thinking about as well. I and suppose things also, like bonuses, maybe, would they be in the uh, limited in the standstill provision, not allowing? Yeah, so anything new, it's basically just saying you don't um, introduce any new benefits or new terms during this. Mm -hmm. But the, the other important one is making sure that you put specific clauses in to encourage cooperation, because very often the service provider is obviously not particularly happy they've lost the contract. Yeah. And they won't always, as you well know, they won't always cooperate. So you want to express contractual provisions, which say um, either when this is up for tender or where the contract's coming to an end, that they will cooperate with the incoming service provider or with you as the client, and they'll give information about the employees, because otherwise yes. it can be really difficult. That, that's a good point. I mean, are there any other employment issues? I, I know not specific to Tupi, but maybe commercial considerations and employment considerations that we should take account of in this context? 
So I think just briefly, I mean, think about whether you want to limit the number of people that can work on the contract. So you sometimes see very um, clear definitions about only sort of six people or only people in these roles can work on the contract. So again, to try and limit the number of people there that will be transfer at the end to the new service provider. So it's, it's worth thinking about that. Um, importantly, think about what happens if the employees working on the contract employed by the service provider aren't providing a decent service. You often want to build in the power to remove them mm -hmm. um, at the service provider's risk, obviously. So that's quite a key one. And then it's worth just generally making sure that there's clauses in there saying that individuals have to comply with your policies, um, your health and safety policy, those sort of issues, um, particularly if they're working on your premises or in your premises. And then finally, um, I also advise on immigration law. So it's just worth mentioning that it's very important to make sure that the service provider under the contract has to ensure that people have the right to work under this. Because yes. the last thing you want is, is a dawn raid by the Home Office and the Home Office turning up and saying, well, actually, these individuals working on your premises don't have immigration permission. So that's quite a key one. Yeah, it's, it's a bit like for. DBS checks as well, isn't it? If you're in that kind of industry where you need special vetting or, or DBS, yeah. then I can see that that would be relevant. So, Kerry, we can't really finish a podcast without mentioning COVID. Yeah, I mean, hopefully less of an issue um, gradually um, and certainly restrictions are ending. So at the moment, uh, I think it's not sort of forefront of any negotiations, but I would say it's still worth um, as a sort of pessimistic lawyer. Um, it's worth just making sure that you future proof and again, just build into the contract clauses, which say that if things do change and once again, we have guidance around COVID and restrictions that the service provider is going to comply with those. And again, that's particularly important if you've got staff working on your premises. So if, for example, masks were to become compulsory, you would want to make it clear that they have to comply with that. Um, so it's it's just worth building in general terms, complying with COVID legislation and guidance if that should become necessary again, um, which hopefully it won't. Understood. Well, Kerry, that's certainly been a lot to think about. Thank you so much. Um, I think we've wrapped up a lot in a very short period of time. And now I kind of get why the schedules sometimes at the back of my outsourcing agreements or MSAs are a little bit longer than I may have originally wished for. Yes, there's, there's certainly a fair bit to think about, um, but hopefully that's that's sort of giving you a starting point next time you're faced with those schedules. Thank you very much. It's nice to speak to you again. Thank you. Thank you for all our listeners for tuning in today. Please do contact me or usual Stevenson Bolton contact if you'd like any further information that we've discussed. Please look out for any future podcasts on issues that may be of relevance to your standard terms and conditions. Thanks for listening.